You ever been abandoned? You ever been uh, left behind? Kind of maybe you felt forgot about? I was on a backpacking trip uh, a couple years ago. It was uh, through my old church. And um, sorry, they knocked all my notes and Bible down, so I got to rearrange everything. Um, I was on this uh, trip, and uh, it was a guided trip. We were in the Ozark Mountains, and so we went down with this organization. We had two guys that went out with us, and it was called a, a Wilderness Challenge Trip, and uh, which meant no tent. Um, we had a tarp that we set up every night, and um, no, uh, no pots or pans. We cooked everything in a, in a coffee can over the fire. We pulled our water out of the rivers and boiled it and all that good stuff. And um, the, the first night on this particular trip, we didn't know where we were going. We didn't know what we were doing. Uh, but this first night, they told us, we're going to go stay in this cave. We're going to sleep in this cave overnight. And I'm thinking, okay, big deal. It's like a hole in the side of a, a cliff. No, they meant like a cave. Like put on the hard hat, the headlamps, crawled down this hole in the side of the hill. And we hiked literally 25 to 30 minutes back underground to this huge cavern called Dance Hall Cavern. I mean, it's just huge, 100-foot, 150-foot ceilings, 200 feet long and 100 feet wide. I mean, it's just massive. Temperature year-round is 50 degrees in there. And uh, it, it's, this, it's this federally protected area. And so before we go in, before we don the hard hats and the, the lights and everything, they tell us, now, you cannot go to the bathroom in this cave anywhere. It is federally protected ecosystem. So go to the bathroom now, and then you're going to spend all night in this cave. And if you've got to go to the bathroom, we've got to hike back out a half hour and go to the bathroom. <clears throat> don't anybody tell me not to think about going to the bathroom. I, you know, road trips are horrible um, for me. My, I stop more than my wife does. And um, so, you know, you tell me I can't go to the bathroom. All I'm going to think about is I've got to go to the bathroom. Well, things worked out well. I have a subscription to Backpacker Magazine. Make fun of me if you will. Um, but I sit around and read about backpacking and, uh, instead of going backpacking. Um, so just the subscription I got, the magazine I got right before this trip had this article in there about taking a pee bottle with you and you, it's a bottle you put in your tent and you have, so you don't have to get out of your tent in the middle of winter when you're camping or wherever, and you can just pee in the bottle and take care of it in the morning. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> you all pee. We all do it. So just accept it. Okay. We backpackers do weird things. And so I thought, Hey, what a great idea. I don't have to get out of the tent to go to the bathroom. So I packed a pee bottle. Little did I know it was going to come in handy. So we, we go into this cave and I mean, it is like pitch black. Uh, I know that I'm doing this with my hand. Okay. My mind is telling me that I'm doing this. Can't see a thing. And so in the middle of the night, I, I think, I don't know, we weren't allowed to have watches either. And so I have no idea what time it is. I got to go to the bathroom because they told me I couldn't. And thankfully I had my pee bottle. So I went to the bathroom. And, uh, you know, I'll go back to sleep, and uh, a couple hours later, I hear some stirring around, and somebody goes, Chris, Chris, are you awake? I said, yeah. So what's going on? And he's like, I got to pee. And I went, ha-ha. Um, no, I didn't do that. But I was just like, I'm like, wow, well, I, don't, I don't know what time it is, you know. And he's like, do you think it's morning? Like, Dude, I don't have a watch. I have no clue what time it is. He's like, well, I don't want to wake up the guides. They're going to be mad. And he's like, but I got to pee. And I'm like, I, and then other people started stirring. And so pretty soon the guides are up and, and they're like, all right, let's, let's all hike out. We'll leave our gear here because we're going to do some rock climbing underground there. And, and so they said, let's all go hike, you know, half hour out, go to the bathroom, half hour back. And I, I said, I'm good. I don't need to go. And the guys were like, 
Okay, you're just going to hang here? I said, yeah, sure. How cool is that? You know, sitting in a cave underground by myself. I'm like, that'll be awesome. New experience. Cool. So they're, all right. So they go traipsing off. And I mean, they're gone for like an hour. And I'm sitting in this cave. Now, the night before, the guys had intentionally gotten us lost in here. Like, we went the same route three times before anybody realized we were doing a circle route. And so I'm, I'm terrified at this point of moving at all. And so I'm just kind of sitting there, and I'm like, hey, this is kind of cool, you know. <laughs> Can't see a thing. Are you over here? Are you over here? I don't know. <clears throat> and then I started going, wow, they've been gone an awfully long time. Hmm. What if something happened to them? What if they all got lost and I'm stuck in this cave in the middle of the Ozark Mountains and nobody knows where we are. Nobody knows where I am. I have no phone. I have no way out. What's going to happen? And my mind starts just playing tricks on me, you know? And I think they've they've fallen into a pit. They're dead. I'm going to die of starvation, you know, in this cave. And so I'm beginning seriously to think they just forgot about me. You know, I'm like, maybe they didn't fall. Maybe they just got, hey, we got everybody. Let's just go back to camp and have fun with Chris. It's like snipe hunting, you know, if you go camping at all. If you grew up in Scouts, that was a lost reference. Note to self, no jokes about snipe hunting. Um, so pretty soon, I see the headlights, the headlamps start bobbing back towards me. And a wave of relief comes over me. I'm not abandoned. I'm not forgotten about. Uh, my, my kids do this. Uh, they play hide-and-seek a lot. Um, they love the game, and, and so we play... And, uh, they'll, be, they'll be playing, and Karen and I are doing something, and, and about half hour into the game, one of them will come traipsing into the kitchen and say, can I have a snack? And we're like, aren't you playing hide-and-seek? And it's like, yeah, you know, but Morgan's hiding. She won't know that I'm in here. <laughs> like, when you don't go looking for her, you know, and, and she does it to him too. But have you ever been abandoned? Yeah, have you ever been forgotten about? Uh, we're talking about this, uh, this series, Famous Last Words. And the, the words that we're going to talk about today is Jesus when he was abandoned by God on the cross. In the moment of his greatest need, God seemingly does this. Turns his back on Jesus. And Jesus feels abandoned. Uh, Bill has been talking about the final words of someone's life, uh, you know, indicate and tell you a lot about them. Uh, he says how we die is, the words we say when we die is reflective of how we lived. And he's had some great illustrations, humorous stories, sad and tragic stories. Uh, I, my favorite last words are the rednecks. Last words. You know what those are? Hey, guys, watch this. That was funny. And you know it's preceded by, right? Hold my beer. Uh, when, uh, in our Wednesday morning men's study, we're going through a book called Risk. Uh, by Kenny Luck. He's the men's pastor at uh, Saddleback Church out in California. And he writes a story in there about, uh, about a, a martyr named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a student and a friend of John, the same John that we read about in Scripture. And Polycarp, when he was 86 years old, um, was arrested, and he was going to be executed for his faith. And Polycarp was such a man of integrity, though, uh, that his word stuck. And even his captors knew that. And so normally they would, like, really tie somebody down to the stake when they're about to set on the fire, you know. And, but he said, I'll stand there. He said, I won't move. And they, they took him at his word. And so he stood up, and he got around the post, and the, fire, the, the sticks are all around him. And uh, the judge said, renounce Christ, Polycarp, and I'll let you live. And I love Polycarp's last words. He says, 86 years I've served him, and he never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? Light the fire. Can you imagine that being your last words? 
That is absolutely incredible. It gives you an idea of how Polycarp lived his life. If you have your Bibles, open into Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, the first book of the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, we'll have it on the screen. You've got it you know, inside your bulletin. Everybody looking there. We've got some, some space in there for notes. But we've got some room in there as well. But we want to look at uh, this one saying of Jesus. Now, what's intriguing about this is that these words of Jesus are only found in, the, in Matthew and Mark's Gospels. Uh, Luke and John don't include these words. In fact, Matthew and Mark, these are the only words of Jesus on the cross that they include in there. And, and it starts in verse 45. It says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And I know what you guys are thinking. Did he just say that right? I don't know. Neither do you, so it doesn't really matter, right? Uh, which Matthew translates for us anyway, uh, so we can read it in English. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, let's look at this for a second. Verse 45 says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Um, let me give you the, the timing for that. That is noon to 3 p.m. Middle of the day, crucifixion. Christ is on the cross. Middle of the day, sun is up, it's shining. And all of a sudden, there's darkness over all the land. It's almost as if creation itself is groaning out in protest to what they're doing to Jesus and you've got to wonder if, if the people present, if they thought about the prophecy from the Old Testament. And because this fulfilled one of the prophets, prophecies. In Amos chapter 8, uh, verses 9 and 10, we read, In that day, in that day being the, the day of the Lord, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Uh, throughout John's gospel, we see Jesus referring to himself uh, with several I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. One of the phrases in John eight twelve is, I am the light of the world. And I love what Max Lucado says. Of course, the world went dark. They were killing the light of the world. Uh, and we go on. We read, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? <clears throat> and the audience there sitting at the cross, they would know those words. They would resonate with them. Because they're the same words that David cried out once. King David, when he's being chased and, and, and pursued by his enemies, he's done no wrong. He's hiding in a cave or in a mountain or in a house somewhere. And we, we hear David say these same words in Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm si and I'm not silent. See, these are the words of the, the righteous sufferer who is paying a terrible price but has done no wrong. David did nothing to be chased by his enemies, deserved to be chased. And Jesus did nothing to, to be crucified on the cross. And they both cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And even more than just the sense of being forsaken, it's the cry of, of someone who knows that relief is available. Who knows that, 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 that they can be restored and that everything can be, be made perfect. And yet it's not being done. David knows that God can intercede and, and eliminate his enemies and restore him to power. And yet it's not happening. He's still in the cave. Jesus knows that God could send down a multitude of angels and, and restore him fully. And yet it's not happening. And you see that word forsaken in Greek is enkatalepo. 
uh, which means to turn away completely, to, to turn away from completely, to abandon, to withdraw protection from, to leave helpless. I, I remember uh, taking my uh, son, he, my firstborn, to uh, a doctor one time. And uh, it was one of the first times that he was really able to, to register a little bit of what was happening, but he didn't really fully know. <clears throat> and so this particular doctor's appointment, and the nurse comes in, does all the stuff with him, and you know, he's happy-go-lucky baby. The doctor comes in, does all his stuff with him, and he's happy-go-lucky baby. And, and the doctor says, okay, we're going to do you know, three shots. And I was going, okay, I hate needles, um, personally. And uh, so I'm already a little nervous about this. But Ethan, he's like one years old. He doesn't have a clue. He doesn't know what's coming. And the doctor leaves, and the nurse comes in. You notice how doctors do that? Like, they never inflict pain on children. They always leave it to nurses. If there's any nurses in here... Work with your doctor on that one. Make him suffer that as well. So the nurse comes in with like these gigantic needles. I'm probably like back. And uh, Ethan's just, hey, you know, what's going on? And, and she takes a cotton ball and alcohol or whatever it is and cleans his thigh. And he's like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool, you know. And the needle's coming. And I'm like, I know what's coming, you know. And she sticks the needle in. And you know that moment when the kid gets a shot? It's like they go mute for like seven minutes. They don't breathe. They're just like... And then they're like, Wah! and he looks up at me with these little baby eyes. And he's like, what was that? You're supposed to protect me. You're not supposed to let me get hurt. And see, in that moment, Ethan, I'm not going to put him on par with David and Jesus, but Ethan is the righteous sufferer. He's like, I've done nothing wrong. Why, why did you just do that to me? And yet this is what Jesus feels. In this one time in his life, he's separated from God. God has turned his back on him. God has abandoned him. And he cries out. Notice that Jesus never cries out during all the physical pain and torment. I mean, I mean think through what Jesus went through up to this point on the cross. Okay, let's, let's not glamorize this. Let's not make it pretty and simple. I mean, Jesus was arrested in a garden... And by a mob of people. He was betrayed by his best, one of his best friends. He was taken before the high priest and he was slapped there. He was handed over to the Roman guards who beat him. And, and, and don't gloss past that word. I mean, we're not talking, you know, a little slap around here. We're talking beating. He was taken and he was, he was tied to a pole. He was flogged. Flog is this, this leather whip. It's got multiple pieces of leather coming off of it. And at the end of each one, uh, there's either a metal ball or a piece of bone or a sharp piece of metal. And it wasn't designed to kill the person. It was designed to torture him. I mean, it would stick in your flesh. And when they pull it back, it would rip chunks of flesh off of your body. And he was flogged nearly to death. He was handed back to the guards and the guards mocked him as king. They made a, a crown of thorns. And, and the thorns, they say, were about one to two inches long. And they weaved it together and they stuck it on his head. And you, you can imagine, they didn't do it gently. They jammed it into his scalp. The blood, I'm sure, is, is pouring down his face. And because kings have scepters, they took an iron rod and they hit him over the head with his scepter. And not just the, the blow of the iron on the head, but driving the thorns even further into his head. From there, he was, was cleaned up a little bit. And he was forced to, 
to carry part of the cross through the crowd that was chanting, crucify him, kill him. And he got so weak at one point he couldn't carry it, and so another person carried it for him. And they get up to the top of the hill, and they strip him naked. And, 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 and crucifixion uh, wasn't a simple f- form of execution. In fact, it was the most severe, and it was reserved for the most heinous of criminals. In fact, many people did not watch crucifixions because of how gruesome it was. Because it wasn't a quick death. Crucifixion was meant to humiliate you and prolong your agony. You died of suffocation because you couldn't breathe anymore. And that's why we read that they broke the legs of the thieves to rush on because when you were crucified... Uh, your body was thrown down on, on the wood beam. And remember, uh, he had just been flogged and beaten and, and f- fresh wounds on his back. So every time his back moved on that piece of wood, it ripped open a new wound. And they stretched out his arms. And, and a lot of times we see the pictures of the nails in the, the hand, but they were actually in the wrist because there's no uh, structural support in your hand to hold your body weight. And so they drive it between the two bones in your wrist because then you're weightier. Your body's on your bone, hanging on that iron spike. And there's a nerve that runs up uh, your forearm. It's the same nerve that when you hit your funny bone, how it makes you feel. And so every time that a person would, would put pressure to lift themselves up so they could breathe, pain would just shoot through their arms into their chest. And, and down at your feet, they put a, a small wooden block. And that was so you could, you could stand on it a little bit. You could push up to find some recovery. But when you pushed up, because they had taken your feet, stacked one on top of the other, and drove a spike through excruciating pain, came up through your legs. And yet in all of that, Jesus never cried out. It wasn't until the land went dark and God put the sins of the world on his shoulders. And God turned his back. That Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the moment that he cries out. You see, all throughout Jesus' life, whenever he was in torment, whenever he was in trouble, God was there. When Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, after the temptation, angels came and tended to Jesus. In John chapter 12, uh, when Jesus says, my heart is troubled, a voice from heaven, God's voice comes down and encourages Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke, we read that he's sweating drops of blood as he's praying about what's about to happen to him. And we read that an angel came and tended to him. And so all throughout Jesus' life, when he was in trouble, when he was in torment, his father was there. And then in this moment, When he needed his dad the most, his father turned his back on him. And we're left wondering why. Why would God do that? Uh, Why would would a father look away as his son was going through that? You see, we always look at this story from the perspective of everyone but God. Uh, We look at it from the perspective of the Roman soldiers. To them, it was just another day on the job, another crucifixion. We look at the perspective of the Jewish leaders who were yelling, crucify him. And and here was another false Messiah they were glad to be rid of. Nothing good came from him. 
You see from the perspective of his disciples, his followers, and, and here is their, their friend, their mentor, their teacher, uh, what they thought was the savior of the world, now dead on the cross. And we see the perspective of Jesus, which rightly so we should, all the pain and humiliation he went through. But we don't really think about it from God's perspective. Imagine what it was like for God to look down and see what the world was doing to his son and to know that you can't intercede. I, I mean, I, I got to be honest, a pastor, Christian, Christ follower, whatever, you know, if I saw somebody harming my son, I don't know what I'd do. I definitely wouldn't step back and just let it continue, let it run its course. And yet God did that. And we're still left wondering why. Let me tell you why. Because Jesus became sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 <clears throat> says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Uh, some translations have to be the sin offering for us. God put the sin of the world, all of our sin, past, present, future, on Jesus' shoulders at that moment on the cross. And God is too holy to be in the presence of sin. And we read in Habakkuk when we studied that as a church, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And so here's a moment when God said, I cannot intercede. My presence cannot be with you at this moment. But it wasn't purely because Jesus became sin, because here's the other part of that sentence, and write this down. Jesus became sin so that we could be forgiven. See, God knew that a sacrifice was required. God knew that blood had to be spilled. God knew that that was the only way. That, that we as human beings cannot be good enough, smart enough. We can't do enough good things. We can't pay enough money to come into his presence. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be mediator. And so God looks down on his son, seeing everything that he's going through, knowing it's the only way. And God abandons him. First Peter 2, verse 24 says this about Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Max Lucado uh, has a book called Next Door Savior. And he tells a story in there um, of, it's a chapter titled Trash Man. And it's a story of a young woman. And uh, she, we find her uh, one day She's walking along the street. It's kind of a, a gray and a dreary day, a little bit like it was this morning. Rain's coming down some. And she's got this, this trash bag that she's carrying. And it, it's heavy, but not just a, a physical burden. There's something else about it. There's an emotional burden tied to it. There's a, a spiritual burden there. And she's walking along the street and needs to rest. And so she comes to a park bench and she just sits there. It doesn't care that the rain is coming down on her. She just sits there. All around her, people are, are walking along. And they all have garbage bags too. Some are bigger than others, but everybody has one. Everybody's weighed down with this burden that they're carrying. As she's sitting there, the, uh, a bus comes up. Splashes water. It's a big puddle right in front of her on this bench. and uh, Splashes water up onto her and her bag, but she didn't care. What's, what difference does the little cold and rain make? 
this guy is 80, 85 years old. He gets off the bus. He's got a bag. It's, I mean, it's just an enormous garbage bag. You can tell it's, it's, it's a huge burden on him. And she wonders in her mind, she, she says, what could he be carrying? What could he have that's so heavy? And, and a voice beside her says, rage, anger. And startled, she, she kind of turns and she hadn't noticed that a, a guy had sat down, a young guy. Nothing really distinct about him. He didn't stand out from anybody else. And he says he's, he's carrying rage. He's been carrying his whole life. He's never let it go. Then his eyes go down to her bag, which she's kind of put beside her, a little bit behind her legs, as if to hide it. And he looks at her bag and he says, shame, guilt. You know, all the stuff you've seen, all the stuff you've done, all the people you've given yourself to. He says, you're carrying shame. And that's when she notices that he doesn't have a garbage bag. He has no burden that he's carrying with him. And he makes her a simple offer. He says, if you want to get rid of it, meet me tomorrow at the city dump, 5 o'clock. And he gets up and walks away. She kind of sits there for a few minutes, taking in the whole conversation and sees him walk off. Not sure what to, what to say or do. Finally, she gets up and goes home. Goes to work the next day. It's Friday. Does the same old thing, carrying her bag. As she's leaving work that day, she, she begins to think about the trash man. She begins to get a, a little bit of a glimmer of hope. Not much, because she's been carrying this around for way too long. She's tried to get rid of it herself. Rather than, than going back to her apartment, though, she turns towards the edge of the city, starts walking towards the city dump. Pretty soon she sees several other people around her, all heading in the same direction. She realizes the trash man has talked with them as well. She gets out to the city dump, and there's this long line of people. There's mounds and mounds of garbage, and she can't see where the line ends. But she can hear. Every few seconds, there's a, a piercing scream agony, torment. And she wonders, as she begins to be afraid, she wonders what's on the other side of this mountain. Am I really here? You know, what's going to happen to me? But she stays in line. That hope has started to build itself. She crosses over the crest of the, the garbage and there she sees in the, in the center of a clearing in the middle of the garbage dump is the trash man. A line of people coming up to him and everyone walks up and he says, let me carry it for you. Let me have your burden. Uh, some people are, are eager to hand it off. Some people are, are reluctant. Some people can't really believe he's about to do what he's going to do. And as she, she finally gets up to the line, he says, let me carry it for you. And tears are, are streaming down her face because she's seen what he's done with every trash bag. And she holds it back a little bit and he says, you can't carry this on your own. You can't do it. So she, shaking, hands him her bag. And he takes it and he puts it over his head. And he dumps it out on top of himself. All the shame, all the guilt, all the ridicule that she'd been carrying around for so long, he put on himself. He screams in agony and torment. And she's overwhelmed. She breaks down and, and she steps back a few steps. 
And he looks at her and he says, it's okay. And, and there's still the long line of people, but there's, there's hundreds of people that are no longer carrying their trash bags and they're kind of lining this clearing in the garbage dump. And so she goes over and she sits down with them and, and just sits in amazement and watches as hundreds of people come and he puts their garbage on himself. In the morning, she wakes up sure that he's dead because who can stand all that? In her eyes, she wipes away the blur And she sees him standing upright, strong as ever, in the middle of the clearing. Friends, we have too much garbage that we're carrying in our lives. We've we've tried to do it ourselves. We've tried to carry this burden for too long. And what God is asking us to do is to come to Jesus on the cross... And to take our garbage and put it on the cross. Because he knows that we can't carry it. We don't like that, do we? We like our crosses clean pristine. And yet the reality is that this is what God is asking us to do. To put our garbage, our burdens, our sins on the shoulders of his son. Because there is no other way. And we're left with a decision. We can accept that gift or we can reject it. It doesn't matter which you do. Jesus died for you all the same. But it's in your hands. And so the question we're left with when, uh, when we look at these last words of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is what are we going to do with that? Knowing that Jesus on the cross carried our individual sins so that we could be made right with God. What are we going to do with that? The band's going to come up, and they're going to sing a song. And I want you to just sit back and listen to the words. They'll be on the screen as well. Let the reality of what what Christ did for you on the cross sink in. As we get ready for Easter Sunday, what better time than this to accept that gift of salvation? Listen to the words. Let this song be your prayer. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.